Morning. This morning I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that the man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, last week we left... Samuel in a pretty sad state. In fact, we we left the whole nation of Israel in a pretty sad state because their king had failed and been rejected by God. It was a it was a pretty much a downer except for our ability to look at that story through the grand story of scripture, the primary story, which is about all of our failure and the hope that we have in Christ, the forgiveness that we have. And today, as we begin two weeks on the life of David, we're just going to brush over the life of David because he's such an important character in the Old Testament. We're going to hit two different themes. Today, we're going to look at David, the anointed one of God. We're going to learn about God's anointing, not only in David, but uh, in our lives as well. And then next week... Noel's going to look at his life as a king, both the highs and the lows of it. So we're just going to gloss over David, and it doesn't mean there aren't powerful things. In fact, sometimes taking, as we're doing, we should have learned this by now, that sometimes taking that 10,000-foot view, rather than getting too down into the details, teaches us things that we'd miss by getting too close. And this has been a very powerful study simply because we've stepped back to see it in the context of the whole. So we're going to continue to do that. The very opening part of this next scene is Samuel in a very depressed state. God has to say to him, how long will you mourn for Saul? Why is Samuel so sad? Clearly, this has gone on for a while. 
The thing I want you to be aware of is that God is not actually chastening Samuel for being sad. Scripture says that God enters into our sadness. He speaks about holding our tears in a bottle. Beautiful imagery about mourners in the ancient funeral ceremony who walked along with the body. And what they would do is carry a small bottle and capture their tears. And then at the end of the ceremony, they would give those vials to the household to say, we experience, we have entered into your pain. When God says, I store up your tears in a bottle, he's saying, I mourn with you. So he's not being chastened for mourning. He's calling him out of it. He's saying, there's a time to mourn, but there's a time to move on. We need to be that for the people in our lives. We need to enter into their sadness, but there's a time where you say, move on, get on your feet. And that's what God does to him. He's saying it's time to first fill your horn. The horn of Samuel is for anointing kings. And so we know that God's got a new plan. And he's saying to Samuel, Samuel, it's time to just let go of the old and recognize that I'm going to do something different now. And then he says, and be on your way. (laughs) Just be on your way. Let's get forward. Let's move into the new thing. But just for a minute, let's look at why this event is so devastating to Samuel. If you go back to chapter 15 in verse 11, when Samuel first hears of Saul's great disobedience, which was a turning point in Saul's whole life. Remember last week where it became clear that his heart was not God's, that he had become a king like the other kings of men. This was the downward turn into a life of anger and violence and insecurity that eventually led to insanity and him taking his own life. It's a tragic turn. Samuel sees this catastrophic failure, and in verse 11, it says that he literally wept through the night. He had booted up to go and confront Saul, but clearly once that confrontation was done, he entered back into that very same anguish. Why is Samuel so sad about what's happened to Saul? I think it would help us to look a little farther back to his mother Hannah. In chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, I encourage you to open your Bible right now if you haven't. We're going back to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. This is when Hannah found out that she was going to have a child. Remember, she was barren. God worked miraculously, opened her womb. And she makes this pronouncement of blessing, but it's actually a prophecy. Verse 1 of chapter 2, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now pay attention as she concludes this vision. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this is before Israel even asked for a king. 
So this is a prophetic word. This whole poetry moves to that final statement. As we journey through this description of how God functions, we see something powerful. That's exactly how God wants to work through the anointed one. Let let me be clear. What Hannah envisioned, and therefore what I believe Samuel envisioned, was not just a king, but a prophet king, a priestly king, what we might refer to as a theocratic kingship, where God is sovereign and worshipped. Now, think about that. Go back through your history. Those kings are themselves referred to as what? Sovereign. And how often does someone serving them refer to them as your worship? You see the point? Kings reign supremely in man's idea of a king. But in God's idea of a king, God reigns. God is sovereign. The king isn't sovereign. God ultimately is worshipped and adored and given glory. The king does not serve for his own glory and his own wealth. He serves for the glory of God and for the mission of God. What Hannah envisioned was a king with the heart of God, that he acts in justice against evil and comes alongside the broken and the hurting and the poor and the hungry, and he elevates them. A servant king. This is what Hannah envisioned. And when Samuel anointed Saul as the king over the people of God, this is what Samuel hoped for. But the people didn't ask for that kind of king. The people asked for a king just like the rest of the nations. And sadly, as we saw last week, that's exactly who they got in Saul. And that's why Samuel was so broken over this. Because Saul was a king like the kingdoms of man. We're going to take a a, a minute and just go even farther back. Did you know Moses spoke about the future likelihood of a king over Israel. Did you know that? You know, often when we look at this story, we think the sin of Israel was asking for a king. And in doing that, they rejected God. No, they asked for a king like the kings of men. That was their rejection of God. In fact, God saw kingship coming to his people. We have Deuteronomy 17. Moses writing to the people to prepare them for life in the promised land. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Listen to the king that God says is the kind of king that is after his own heart. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled on it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. And now listen to who he must be. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother of Israel. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. 
This is perhaps the most important piece of this king's job description. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brother and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. God always saw kingship coming. We're going to see in a few minutes why that was always part of his big story. Israel wanted a king like everybody else, and they got it. Consequently, Samuel didn't get this king for the people of Israel, and he's left understandably sad. He looked for Saul to be a king after God's own heart, who leads by serving a true king. There's no kings like that in man's world. It's interesting that we're in an election season in this church. We don't want to be political. We want to be about Christ. Christ changes culture. But some people would tell you that they know the type of government God wants for this country, and it's either the Democrats or it's the Republicans. So it begs the question, what is the right government that God wants for mankind? What kind of government were we created for? A monarchy? A socialist republic, a libertarian-style democracy. Are any of these really how we're supposed to rule our lives? Well, let me, let me answer it this way. When men rule and God doesn't rule, that's always the wrong form of government. God's idea of government is whoever is given that power recognizes that above them God is sovereign, and they wield that power as a good and gracious God would wield it. You see, I I can't stress that enough. And in a few moments, I'm going to share with you the role that I think you and I are to play in that. We have a far more powerful role to play in culture than just our vote, as powerful as that may be. We have a far more powerful role to play as, as God's children. You can track through the Bible, you can track through history and see where the leaders of the world have been on their faces before God, God has blessed those nations. It's not about necessarily the makeup of their constitution. I probably opened a big can of worms there. I'm just going to leave it open, just going to set it right there and let you struggle with it a little bit, because we're going to move on, because Samuel moves on. He gets up, he fills his horn gets on his way, and he goes to Jesse. When they said, do you come in peace? They were nervous. That was a natural reaction because he was a judge and prophet. He was either coming to bring God's word of condemnation and to call people to repentance, or he was coming to bless and to worship. It was a common thing for Samuel to have people say, are you you coming in peace? And in this case, he said, yes, consecrate yourselves, come, and we'll sacrifice and and we'll eat together, and we'll worship God together. Samuel has the horn, and so the first person we have is Eliab, and Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. Why does he say that? Because his appearance is like a king, strong and tall, just like Saul. See, this is what's really interesting here. Samuel wants God's anointed, but he's making the exact same mistake that he made with Saul. Saul was 
a giant among men. How many know uh, William Wallace, Braveheart, the king figure of the Scots tribes who uh, fought in the 1300s, I think? Well, William Wallace was six and a half feet tall. He could wield a broadsword and nobody could defeat him. In a society where warfare was how you settled disputes, a strong and powerful king was what you expected. Saul was that. Samuel looks at Eliab and says, well, look at him. He's got to be the right one. God says, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, what's the word? Heart. Now, we see this in a fresh way because we've learned, according to Hannah, the kind of king God wants, someone whose heart is the Lord's, a man after God's own heart, a priestly king, a prophet king, a servant leader. Seven of them come and go. I'm imagining they're dropping down in stature each time, you know. None of them. And so Samuel asks, Jesse, is this everyone? And Jesse says, well, yeah, all all that matters. You you, you can't be meaning little Davy out there with the flock, can you? By process of elimination, Samuel figures out, well, bring him here. And sure enough, he comes. And he's a beautiful young man. But that's not so much the point here. He's not kingly, but he's got God's heart. He's anointed, and it says from that moment on, the power of God is with him. And David becomes the anointed one of God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And David's stories in these early years are legendary. Great battles and great victories, but he also has great hardship. Saul goes after him. He ends up being uh, an exile in his own country. Uh, Robin Hood and Merry Men style of character, coming in and fighting for Israel but avoiding Saul. It was a very difficult thing. And some of the Psalms that David writes during this period, you can hear his anguish. But it was also during this period that we see these great works of God through David. David and Goliath is one of those stories. I want to talk about what it means to be an anointed one of God. Wherever you see those who God calls out and anoints in a special way, there tend to be certain commonalities. I want to list five of them quickly. First of all, the anointed one is not typically the world's choice. It's not about beauty or power or who you know. And so very often those that we see God using for His glory are not those that people would expect. We look for ability. We look for stature. We look for giftedness. God doesn't. He looks for the condition of our heart. So the anointed one is not often the one that the world chooses. Second, the anointed one is always given a message. And the message is not something that society understands. The message is summed up like this. God can deliver us by the few and by the one. We see that in David's life over and over again. God can deliver us by the few and by the one. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Third, the anointed is always called to suffer in order for God to do a redemptive work. In David's case, not just on behalf of Israel, but for himself. How did David mature to the point where he could take that heart and put it to work in those early wonderful years of kingship? 
It was through the hardship. God used the hardship to purify him, to teach him to depend on God, to do things for God's glory. Fourth, the anointed one is given a promise and also has God's presence in their life, God's presence with a promise. We see it here. As soon as he's anointed, it said the Spirit of God came upon him powerfully and remained with him. When God anoints us and calls us to a special thing, even though it calls for suffering, he promises to be with us through that, and he promises that he will redeem it, that he will use it for his glory. And then finally, the anointed has a job, extending God's rule, extending God's authority. You know the word kingdom, basileia, literally means the rule of So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a geographic zone. We're talking about God's authority being extended, the heart of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the way God wants society to function. That's the rule of God. That's what the anointed is to bring. David becomes God's priestly king. He emerges as a man after God's own heart, a servant king, a worshiping king. David led the nation of Israel in worship. One story that is often confused is when David led the procession up to the mountain of God, and he takes off his robes, and he wears an ephod, which is simply a a normal coat that you would wear uh, around the house. He did not dress immodestly. Don't let anybody ever tell you David dressed naked before God. That's, That's just not true. He took off his kingly robes so that he could be a commoner because only God was to be worshiped, not him. He was calling the nation to journey with him to the glory of God. See, everything in David's life during this period He was indeed, as he has now been called, a man after God's own heart. So how do we take that lesson and move it forward to us today? Let me remind you of how we are looking at the Old Testament in order to help it come into our lives in a transformational way. Just quickly, Christ's encounter in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, with the two on the road to Emmaus. He meets them. They don't recognize him. They're troubled. They're talking. It's this Jesus of Nazareth. We thought he was the Messiah, and instead they put him to death. Now we've heard rumors that that he's alive. We just don't get it all. And Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, starting with Moses, and he teaches them everything about himself in all of the scriptures. Now, for those people at that time, the scriptures were the Old Testament. Later on, When Jesus meets up with all of the disciples, Jesus goes through all of the Old Testament scriptures showing them that from first to last, it's all about him. Don't you see, this is what it was always supposed to be. It all points to me. And it's out of that knowledge of the Jesus that the Old Testament predicts and reveals symbolically, they're able to go and make followers of him of all nations. So when we come back to the Old Testament, we're always looking through Christ. You've seen that through this whole study. How often have we paused and stepped back and seen these stories and these characters that in the New Testament are revealed to point to Christ? And how precious has that been? You see, if we didn't do that, we would read it more about us. What about me do I see in this? We'd read it moralistically 
And there would be lessons to learn. For instance, the David and Goliath, the lesson might be the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You can kill the giants in your life if you believe in God enough. Now, that's one way to look at it, but it's not the ultimate message. We would look at 1 Samuel 16, the anointing of David, and the moralistic lesson would be you don't judge a book by its cover. Good lessons, but not transforming. They're not transcendent. There's so much more that's meant here. And we learn it by not making the connection from David to us, but first making the connection from David to Christ, and then from Christ to us. And that's what Scripture does for us. Back to Hannah chapter 2. He will give strength to his king. He will exhort the horn of his anointed. You know in the Hebrew what the word anointed means? Messiah. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know what word is used there? Christ. Hannah is not just by the influence of the Holy Spirit looking to a David. She's looking to the true David, the true king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That king. She's looking forward to that Christ. He was the true anointed one. Now, you see in your notes that there's two more points, right? And you're going, wow, we've got to wrap up here, don't we? Well, exactly. Typically, when I have three points in an outline, you know that I've got several subpoints for each. But in this case, the subpoints don't change. Only the heading changes. What's true of David is also true of Jesus in the ultimate sense. Think about it. Jesus was not the world's choice. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. He was not comely. He was not attractive in any way that people would look at him and say, he is the one from God. Jesus was given a message that the world didn't understand. What was his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus suffered for God's redeeming purposes. He was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering, and by his wounds, God redeemed you and me. Jesus was given a promise. Because he humbled himself, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God exalted his son. He had the presence of God. In fact, he was the very essence of God. In human form. He had a job. (laughs) His job was to extend the kingdom of God. You see, David was king over Israel, and Jesus was David's descendant, and so therefore he had the right to David's throne. But Jesus wasn't just David's firstborn, he was the firstborn over all creation. He is sovereign, and in his coming, He extends the rule of God. So now we go from David to Jesus to us. And what do we see? 
Did you know every believer is the anointed one of God? You'll see it in 2 Corinthians 1.22. By the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are all the anointed. We are now brothers of Christ, sons and daughters of God, and joint heirs with Jesus. We are the anointed household, the royal priesthood. The world didn't choose us. And this November, the world isn't going to choose you and me to extend the reign, the rule over humanity. But trust me, God has chosen you and me. And whatever happens with your vote, I'm going to tell you, you and I have been anointed by God to bring the rule of God, the glory of God, to our culture. We've been given a message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We are called to suffer for Christ. But we are given a promise that God will turn all things for good. He will redeem all suffering for his glory. And we have the promise of his presence. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you and I have been given a job. In fact, we've been given the keys to the company business. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. You see, that's kingly authority. We are those into whose hands God has given the task of extending the rule of God by his authority over our lives and by the transforming work of the gospel. How does a nation rule itself as a kingdom under God? Is it through constitutional change? Is it through law change? Is that where our power is? No. It's through life change. It's through heart change. And it's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God for God's beneficent rule of justice and mercy to extend And you and I have that power and that calling. We are the anointed of God in Christ. That's a high privilege and a high calling. I think of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, he chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we see ourselves in a fresh light through the life of David. We see him as a forerunner of the true king of kings and the true Lord of lords, the one who came not just to sit on the throne of his father David, but who sits on the throne over all creation and who sits on the throne of our lives. As a royal priesthood, may we be those who submit to your sovereignty in our lives, who live for your glory, who dispense justice in the name of Jesus, who dispense mercy, who bring the message of the transforming work of the gospel, and in so doing, extend the grace and the rule of God into the hearts and minds of people around us. Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.